Welcome in. We've got a great episode for you this week. It might be slightly pretentious. I'm just kidding. It's going to be a blast. We have Matthew Cummings, the owner, founder of Pretentious Crafts, home of Pretentious Beer and Pretentious Glass. Uh, He'll be joining us here in a little bit. They're based out of Knoxville, Tennessee. And then we open up our six-pack with a very fun one with author and businessman Wesley Brown. Uh, Yeah, it's going to be a fun episode. Remember, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Hop Spirits, all one word. Don't forget to check out our best friend, One Sip Beer Review. They're on Instagram at One Sip Beer Review. They do near daily beer reviews, some fun videos, some fun giveaways. So check them out on Instagram at One Sip Beer Review. All right, let's get to the six pack. Joining us now for a six pack of questions is author and businessman Wesley Brown. Now, Wesley wrote Hillbilly Hustle, which is out and available right now. And you can listen to our full interview dropping Monday on our very first Hops and Spirits Bar Conversations. But here's a little sample. It's the six pack of questions. And Wesley, my first one for you is hops or spirits. What's your drink? What's your drink of choice these days? My go to is beer. And, and my secondary is bourbon. I, I mix in a little <laughs> bit of bourbon here and there, but I mostly drink beer. And then uh, to me, I think one of the coolest parts of, of the book Hillbilly Hustle was part of your, your, your launch when you guys were going to you know, have the big book tour and all that. You got to be part of making of a beer called Hillbilly Hustle, the lager from Country Boy. What was that like? That was awesome. <laughs> um, my buddy Nate Coppage is the brewer at Country Boy, and he's also a, a reader. We actually have a book club that he's a part of. So when I had a book coming out, I really was hoping to be able to do this. Contacted him, and his first thing was, "Well, I need to read the book first because he didn't want it. He didn't want to attach a Country Boy beer to a book that was no good. But he read it, and he was satisfied that it was good. And he also said, "You know, I need to read it to know what my inspiration would be." And so we went through some different iterations, but it wound up being a uh, blackberry lemon lager. And since it came out, it is one of the best-selling beers at Country Boy. They now are getting requests to distribute it in Ohio. And next spring, if all holds, I do believe there are going to be cans of Country Boy released. West Virginia University Press has approved the book cover for the label. And I have to give credit where credit is due. The first person I know who had a book with a, with a book-themed beer was David Joy did this with Innovation Brewing in uh, Silva, North, Silva, North Carolina. That's kind of where I got the idea for it. But Country Boy made it happen. So it's been really, really a fun part. And, you know, the, the book sales are good, but they would be better without the pandemic. I couldn't go on tour. But it's been kind of nice to see, well, if nothing else, the beer sales have been really, really strong. <laughs> I was going to say that, you know, at least something, uh, you know, else came out of this and you can have have a beer and read the book all in all at once. Um, uh, what's the hardest job you have? Is it an attorney, a coach? Is it dad? What is the hardest job you have these days? Attorney's the toughest one. I enjoy being an attorney and I, and I practice areas that that interests me, but the rigor of being an attorney, uh, nothing else really compares to that. Uh, I find being a dad, not a job. I just really enjoy that part of my life. So I, I, I wouldn't call that part a job. I, the, 
the, the, my greatest fear when I do all these different things is I'm always saying, I'm still practicing law. I don't want anyone to ever think that I've moved on from the practice of law because sometimes I get asked that. But that is my livelihood is practicing law. Everything else I, I, fit, I fit into my, my free time aside from it. But, yeah, that's, that's, that's the tough one. And then you kind of touched on this earlier, but how did you get into writing? Was it, was it those creative writing classes back in school? Was that kind of the, the complete jump off? That was what told me how much I loved it was, was elementary school. I just, you know, they, they would say write 500 words and I'd write 3000 and, and my teachers, I, and, and my teachers back then were really encouraging, I guess, cause they, they knew I had a passion for it. I, the funny part is no one really asked you to write much, uh, between elementary school and college, you know, there's kind of a dead spot in there, but when I got to college, I really took, I took every creative writing class I could and, and still graduate. That was the one class that I truly loved. And I had thoughts of maybe going on and getting an MFA, but you know, ultimately I decided to go to law school because I thought I could pursue both. And I saw the handwriting on the wall too, that it's, it's a challenging thing to just be a writer unless you can get on with the university and teach. So I, I, I worked really hard at it in undergrad and then I went to law school and I was away from it, but I just couldn't stand it. And so, like I said, I started to try to write my first novel while I was in law school. When I came out of law school and was an attorney, I really didn't write anything for probably eight or nine years. And then I started going to writing courses at EKU. The, I, I took these like summer courses that you audit and you don't get any credit for. And that got me back into it. But the thing that really got me back was the Appalachian Writers Workshop at the Hyman Settlement School. I would recommend to anyone who has an interest and a passion for writing to, to look into that workshop. It's a great workshop. I studied under Silas House my first year there. And that really was the jumping off point. And he and I have remained friends to this day. And he's been really supportive of my book, which I appreciate. Um, but that's that's the writing tale. But again... It took me from the start of my first novel to publication, twenty-three years. So that that it's it, it was a long haul. And then, what's the best place you've been able to visit through all your journeys in life? We went to Ireland last summer as a family, and I did not want to come home. <laughs> so I'm going to say Ireland. The pub life uh, there really suited me and also my wife and kids, we just really felt at home in Ireland. So that was the best thing. And it was, it was the, it was the last trip we took as a family before my oldest son started college at UK. So it was a pretty special time. And then any place you'd like to go that you haven't been able to go yet. Mm, That's a a lot of places. Um, I'd like to go elsewhere in Europe. I also would like to go to Japan. I've always been had somewhat of a fascination with Japan and I've not been able to do anything like that. So those are those are really the the main places I can think of that I'd want to go. I've I've got a good friend who's from England who has got me to get into Tottenham Hotspur soccer or football and also Robert Johnson, who's a good friend of mine who is the, the chair of the EKU MFA program, is also a Tottenham Hotspur fan. They play in North London. And I, I guess if I had to pick one thing, 
I'd like to go to North London and see a, a Spurs game there. I was going to say, that sounds like fun. Hit up the pubs afterward and uh, sounds like a great trip to me. <laughs> uh, I would have friends there too, which is, which makes it nice. So, and then the final question, you know, you've gotten to know a lot of cool people do a lot of cool things. What's the best thing that you've been able to do because of your jobs or just who you've been able to know? You know, one of the most inspiring times I had, and it wasn't a one-time deal, but I really enjoy the Western Carolina University Spring Literary Festival. And I was supposed to have gone there this year and it was canceled by the pandemic. That was a little bit heartbreaking, but try to keep it in perspective because much worse things are happening to people than having their book tours stepped on by this pandemic. I mean, it's a it's a horrible tragedy that we have going on. So my, 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 my issues are small, but my first year there, uh, two of my writing uh, sort of heroes are Ron Rash and Colin McCann. And one of my good friends is George Singleton, who is a author who's a close friend of Ron Rash's. Well, the first year that I went to that festival, George Singleton was reading and Colin McCann was the keynote and on the second night, uh, my wife and I were invited to Ron Rash's house to sit and hang out with Colin McCann. And he sang Irish pub songs all night. I don't know if that's the right thing to call him, but that's kind of how I think. <laughs> and we had drinks and I was literally sitting with, with literary heroes of mine. Also Pam Duncan, who's an instructor there, who's one of my teachers who I'm great friends with, who I greatly admire. She was there, and I, that, I've got to say, of everything I've done, I think that first time, oh, I, I, sh I should point out too, that was the, that was, I also met David Joy, who's a, just a phenomenal novelist, who's, who has a new book out called When These Mountains Burn that has just really taken off. Uh, I met him, and so he was there as well that night. That's got to be the peak. There's a picture of all of us from that night. And I felt like a little bit of a pretender because I was the only one there in that photo that wasn't a published author. I think Jeremy Jones was in that picture too. He's a great writer and a real nice guy who teaches there. And I just thought this is the pinnacle. But at the same time, I thought, I really wish I had a book too. And so if I could recreate that and go back now that I'm published as well, it'd feel pretty good. But I got to tell you on that night, it felt pretty damn good to be there whipping beers and, and singing Irish songs with those guys. Oh, that sounds like a, a great night and a, and a great uh, memory for you there. Uh, Wesley, thank you so much for, for taking time to talk a little bit about your life, the book Hillbilly Hustle, and one last time, where can people find out about you and the book? WesleyBrown.com uh, has all kinds of information. Also, uh, there's a Hillbilly Hustle page on Facebook. And, you know, get up with me. I love doing book clubs. I did a book club just this past week and reading. So there's a way to contact me if you want to read the book and do book clubs. As you can tell from this podcast, I'm all too happy to talk. I am a talker and uh, I, I'm, I'm glad to discuss writing and reading and beer and pizza and law and what I learned about marijuana and tattooing and everything for the book. <laughs> I love to I love to have a good chat with people. That, and that's also one of the reasons I loved Ireland. They love a good chat too. So anyway, uh, get me, get me either of those places. I'd love to connect. 
Awesome, awesome. Wesley Brown, thank you so much for taking the time. Jonathan, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you again to Wesley Brown for hopping on for a six-pack of questions, and you can hear our full interview dropping Monday in our very first Hops and Spirits Bar Conversations podcast. That's dropping Monday. You can find out more on our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook pages at Hops Spirits. Follow along there as we got a lot more fun interviews for the Bar Conversations podcast coming soon. And now we switch gears, get into the beer side of things, the hoppy side, because joining us now is Matthew Cummings, the owner, founder, brewer of Pretentious Crafts in Knoxville, Tennessee, home of Pretentious Glass and Pretentious Beer. Matthew, thanks for taking some time. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Now, I was doing a little reading before our interview and even j- just chatting a, l- a little bit before uh, you know we hit the record button. Uh even though you're living in Tennessee, you're a Kentucky boy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Grew up in South Central Kentucky, uh, right in between um, Del Hollow and Lake Cumberland. Okay, awesome, awesome. And then, uh, I guess my my biggest question for you is, uh, you know, you started Pretentious Glass uh, first uh, of everything. Did it all start with a small drinking club in Louisville, uh, where you didn't really have some good glassware? Is that how it all kind of started? Yeah, I mean, pretty much. So we had, I was at uh, Melwood Art Center in Louisville. I had my studio space there. And uh, <clears throat> I, uh, you know, I was a, a full-time gallery artist at the time and had been for over a decade. And uh, my sculpture studio was there. And there was a small group of like five or six of us that were all big craft beer fans, you know, back in like 2010, 2011. And uh, we would have like uh, every Friday, we would take off early at three and meet on the courtyard and just share, uh, you know, hard to get beers, which at the time was like, probably like zombie dust was like, we were pretty excited if we were able to get all of that, you know? Uh, so yeah, 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 exactly. And then, you know, so you were a full-time sculpture artist, um, so to speak, and then did you just make a couple of glasses for your friends? And the next thing you know, you had like a, a, a new venture. Is that, is that where it all like, I mean, how it jumped off? Yeah. I mean, pretty much. So we started <clears throat> one day, uh, I think it was somebody's birthday. And on the birthdays, we always drink bourbon. And uh, I think we got a little too drunk and that's when all the either <laughs> great ideas or terrible ideas happen. Right. Exactly. And one of my friends was like, was like, Matthew, you, they're a glass blower. You should make some beer glasses for us. And I was like, no, that's stupid. And then they kept, I was like, well, will you buy them? And uh, they're like, yeah. I was like, all right, so I'll do that. So I made, um, I still have sketches from that. One of my friends who was like, uh, uh, like did coding work, drew some sketches. They were so awful. And we ended up, I ended up making like uh, these uh, bespoke tulip glasses. Okay. Uh, and where I would literally carve the handprint out of each member of the club. So they had glasses, handmade glasses that literally fit like a glove. And uh, we made those. And in the process of doing the research and figuring out like what would be a pretty versatile glass, because if we're going to do a bespoke glass, I want to be able to use it for a lot mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of different kinds of styles. And um, it kind of dawned on me that that was something that was hiding out in plain view uh, that no one was really addressing the 
uh, diverse flavor profiles and the and the breadth of um, styles in craft beer at the time. And you know, this was like almost ten years ago, so it was a fraction of what is out right now. And uh, you know, at best case, then like if you went to a good craft beer bar, they would serve you know the high grab stuff out of a snifter glass. And a lot of people still do that, and which is fine, but that's designed for uh, a liquor. You know, it's not designed for craft beer. And I was a big craft beer fan, and I was a glass blower, and I could prototype them out, you know, one at a time. So it just seemed like kind of kismet. And I got into it, started making some glasses uh, just to fill it out. And actually, the first person I took the glasses to was Sam at Against the Green. And then the second person I took the glasses to was Lori at, uh, it was like right after Holy Grail had opened up. Uh, so those were the two people that like before anyone else knew that I was working on this, that I sought out their advice on, you know, what elements of these glasses worked and what would make a good grouping and, you know, all of that. And even if, if they thought it would work. And I was going to say, I'm sure Sam gave you um, a very interesting reply, know, knowing how, how he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he was actually, uh, he was was really super helpful and, and very, uh, he didn't know either, you know, if this would like have any um, momentum to it or not. But he was mm-hmm. definitely about like trying to figure it out. And that was the first order of glasses that I got for Pretentious was, for his, and they're still there at the brewery. Um, he commissioned me to make a set for the investors. And so they're in a little, it's by the merch area. There's like this little red case with a lock on it. Uh, and that's where the glasses are. The very first set of glasses that I made outside of, you know, that club. That is, that is awesome. And then how did, how do you get into glass blowing? Because to me, I don't feel like that is a thing that is, you know, when you're in school, you know, on the career list that the counselors are talking to you about, um, you know, and it's a difficult career too. you know, you're, it's hot, it's, you know, sweaty, dirty. How did yeah. you get into, into glass blowing? So actually, I mean, you, you, you are kind of right in that, you know, talking about career paths, but most people start in college glass blowing. Almost every state has at least one glass program. Uh, Kentucky has two. You've got one at UofL with Shea Rhodes and then one at Center College, which is where I went to. So I lived, you know, just south of Lexington and uh, and then lived in Louisville for like eight years. Um, So, yeah, both of those both those areas have great glass programs. And then I was going to say, I mean, Obviously, it's a difficult task to do. I um, mean, very, very little room for error, um, so to speak. I mean, you can still do some some molding at times, but you know, you do all of this yourself pretty much. You might have a little bit of help, but you hand make all of your glasses. Uh, pretty much, only you're a one man crew. Well, no, at this point, actually, we've got a big. I've got a big um, foster of, or a, a roster of glass artists that help out. So. We've got right now myself and three other glass blowers. We're bringing on another person like in a month. Um, so yeah, no, we've got, we've, we've grown a bit beyond just the one. It started as that, but to keep, to keep up with demand, um, you know, we've got our own glass blowing studio here in Knoxville that's dedicated to our glassware full time. And, uh, 
and then we've got an awesome crew uh, of people that help out. I was going to say, I'm sure that took your hours down from like the the 80 hours at first when it all kind of took off, right? Yeah. Well, not really. No, not really. Because <laughs> then I decided once I got like some, well, I didn't ever really pull back too much from the glass blowing studio. I was blowing glass all day, all day today. Uh, but I tried to, I've got so many other things that I have to deal with owning brewery and then, you know, running the glass studio at that scale. There's a lot. I just do way too much paperwork. <laughs> yeah. Now, now I'll say this. Obviously, when you started, you, you never know how things are going to go. You always have high hopes, but you n- never know how it's going to go. But you have now been featured in Forbes, you know, Huffington Post, you name it. You've been yeah. featured. Did you ever expect this to take off like it has and be able to expand with multiple people now, uh, you know, a brewery with it? I mean, did you ever expect this to turn out to what it is now? Hell no. Absolutely <laughs> not. Yeah, no way. Even like if you would have told me this like six years ago that that where we are now is where it would end up, I wouldn't have believed it. You know, having the opportunity like it just it really literally started as like a side hustle. You know, I was hoping to sell like 20 or 30 glasses a month and be happy with that. And that's what we hit when we opened up uh, the Etsy shop. And I was like, oh, this is so awesome. This is what a successful Etsy shop is like, you know, <laughs> like make it like five or six hundred dollars a month. And then um, and then, you know, several months later, when we got featured on Huffington Post and Food Beast, I was actually doing a pop up show at Against the Grain, uh, just like they let me set up uh, some glasses at a table and sell, you know, to the, the patrons coming in. And uh, so I'm like literally this starving artist, like with all of my glassware, like, please give me money so I can go buy beer, you know? <laughs> and then my phone at the time, Etsy has had this, and I don't know if they still do, they had this uh, sound notification when you sold something. It would do like an old school cash register and go like, cha-ching, you know? So I'm sitting there and all of a sudden my phone just starts blowing up like, cha-ching, 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 cha-ching. And I'm like, fuck, I'm like trying to mute my phone. I'm like, damn it, phone, you are not helping right now. Like, why are you making <laughs> these money noises? No one's buying anything. Like, this guy, I thought about buying something and all of a sudden heard a bunch of money noises coming out of my pocket. I mean, and so I get, I didn't know what was going on. I started getting congratulations from people who I hadn't talked to in years. And I get home and Google, you know, myself. And uh, then that came up with, um, uh, the food beast, uh, and then Huff Post, because it was like the 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 website version. And I didn't think I thought it would say Huffington Post. So I was reading it like Huff Post. Okay, I don't know what that is. Whatever. Blah, 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 blah. And then I go like I'm like, wait, that's not Huffington Post. Yes, it was. <laughs> so it went from you know selling selling a handful, you know, twenty or thirty glasses a month to like two or three hundred glasses literally that night, and then staying you know, doing it part-time to doing it 80 hours a week. And, you know, we were back ordered two or three months for like the next two years until we opened up the shop here and was able to expand our production. And then that volume demand stayed, which was crazy with it being this kind of viral beginning that the, the level didn't have that crazy peak, you know, we we're able to grow it slowly uh, into something that it is today where we've got this great community of artists uh, that 
you know, get a living wage from doing this and be able to learn the craft and be able to be taken care of and giving the opportunity to develop themselves as artists. Because uh, that's really what it was about from the beginning was a way for me to offset, you know, and make some more consistent income, you know, so I could be a glass artist. Uh, and so that's what we use, um, you know, for our staff here. You know, it has to have this kind of ulterior motive kind of vibe. And then, and so you're, you're still to this day doing kind of the, the other kind of glass glass works too, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, uh, it was like last year we built this like huge, uh, like 35 foot flame for the new university of Tennessee student center. It's just massive sculptural piece. So yeah, we still do all of that. And we do a bunch of stuff for, um, like Blackberry Farms and Mountain uh, and the brewery, we do a ton of, you know, vases and votives and whiskey glasses and decanters and anything you can imagine made out of glass. And then I guess one thing that I found very interesting when I was reading about kind of how you got into maybe the, when you got into making the glasses for beer and, and things like that was you got into some home brewing so you could understand oh, things oh, oh. better. Yeah. I, I'm, that's a heck of a way to do some research. Yeah. Well, also, you got to remember, I was a really broke artist at the time <laughs> with a serious love for craft beer. You know? So I was like, I was doing the research for the glassware and, you know, I was devouring. I'm very left brain, right brain uh, when it comes to creative stuff. So I do a ton of research first. So I was devouring all of these books. Uh, about the history of beer, styles of beer, tasting beer, and so many of them recommended trying home brewing because it's not expensive to get into, and it teaches you about you know what malt does, what yeast does, what hops do. You just get such a deeper understanding of it, and it sounded fun. And then I found out I could make like double IPAs for a dollar a pint and have five gallons of it at home, and so I like. Sure, I'm gonna give it a shot. I told my wife that I was thinking about. It. She said, "Hell no! Like you're gonna take over a, a bathroom. We only have like one bathroom. You can't take it over and fill it with beer." And uh, so she said no. And I was like, "Ah, shit! I really want to do it. Like I feel like I need to do it." So I took her to her favorite tapas restaurant. And as we were being seated on a Friday night in the middle of a packed restaurant, I was like, "Oh, sweet! Just want to let you know, I went to the homebrew shop today and I got a bunch of stuff." <laughs> just so she like you know be in a safe public space yeah you, she couldn't hurt do, do throw anything at you do anything like that you, yeah you, right you... yeah exactly exactly and then got into it and kind of like the bug bit me you know i would share my home brews with the with the glass blowers you know at flame run was where i rented out all the time there in, in louisville and um then ke- got a keg rater for the studio so anytime i was entertaining friends uh at the sculpture studio i would have stuff to serve uh and then whenever i moved to uh, knoxville it was like we had to build a glass blowing studio from scratch uh so it took about a year uh to build the shop and get it approved and get it open dealing with all the hoops to jump through uh and so i wasn't able i would have to travel to blow glass and we would go to Asheville a lot for that actually that was the closest spot and uh whenever all that was going down i wasn't able to 
express myself creatively through the material that I'd chosen. Uh, so, but I was, you know, I'd work, you know, 30 days uh, a month, 29 days a month, and I'd have one day off and I would homebrew. And then I'll start going to festivals around Knoxville and, you know, serving my homebrew to, to people that I didn't know. And then getting that, that energy and that vibe of being able to share something creative with somebody else filled that void that I was missing by not being able to be creative with glass. You know, it's like when people ask, like, if, if I think uh, craft beer is a craft or an art form, I think it's an art form because I'm an artist and I wasn't able to do my art for over a year and making craft beer satisfied those creative urges. I was going to say, I mean, craft beer is an art. It's a different form, I, I, mm-hmm. I would say. So that kind of takes me to my my next thing is, obviously, you, you guys move down to Knoxville. You open up shop there. And then you open up a craft beer bar in 2016, which I'm sure it yeah. was uh, with your glassware. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. 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 I'm guessing, was that the next logical step where your homebrew was getting pretty good? And you're like, all right, let's see what we can do. Yeah. Well, actually, funny, like behind the scenes info on that. Originally, the plan was to um, have Against the Grain open up a satellite spot here accompanying this. Uh, And that was back before they built the production facilities. So they were thinking about, you know, kind of doing brew dog style where they open up a bunch of brew pubs in different areas so they can distribute within that county uh, or going and doing the big production uh, facility. So obviously they chose the production facility. <clears throat> and then I was talking to Sam. He was like, dude, you just need to do it yourself. I, like, I don't know if, I mean, that's, there's so much to opening up a brewery and um, kind of talked me into it. And then the homebrew was getting some good responses. So that was kind of encouraging. And then I got connected with some great people, uh, Will Brady and Alex Rich, who are the other. So we actually don't, use the term head brewers here because there's we're kind of like a uh you know three three part um i don't know like hell beach or something you know, three, three <laughs> and you each have your own area that you love yeah exactly so we got you know will is like really mechanical cold side heavy alex is hot side heavy and then i'm like recipe flavor profiles you know more of the uh sensory um and then each person, I'm not saying that any of the other people are bad at those other areas, but that's just kind of the niche that we fall into. And then that kind of fluctuates a little bit. Um, so I got lucky, got, you know, got connected with some great people. And, uh, and then we opened up the craft beer bar so that we could do it slow, not take on investors, not take on, you know, a, a bunch of debt in a way that we would have to compromise how what the vision was and then you know and then a lot of places do that right they say oh we're gonna open up as a craft beer spot and we'll open up as a brewery later and then that never happens because it's a hard that's a hard path to go down you know um and so uh, like a year later we got the brewing equipment um got everything set up and then started producing our own beer and then obviously it's a got to be a pretty cool experience for for you and and there I think it's what you you wanted that shared experience with in-house beer served in in-house glassware. Um, mm-hmm. I mean that's a, a pretty cool experience in a tap room if I if I have to say so. 
Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're going to have to come down. It's fun. And you know, as COVID times to do it is uh, over the the interwebs. But yeah, dude, you have to come down sometime and check it out in person. And I was going to say, how, how rewarding for you is it that they're drinking beer that you've helped create and glass that you've helped create and, and glassware that you've helped create? Because I mean, that's like full circle, if you ask me, from especially where you started. Yeah, right, right. It is it's kind of bizarre. Um, we take a lot of pride out of that. And I say we because it is, you know, we've got, there's 14 employees between the two businesses, so much bigger than I thought, you know, anything like this would be. Uh, and there's so many people that add like crucial elements to this experience of like Will does all of our illustrations. You know, we do, uh, uh, we very rarely, we don't do any flagships. There's, there's very rarely we rebrew beers uh, unless it's for something like we just finished up for GABF submissions and those we will go through and, and rebrew and really dial in. Um, but we like to have fun, like to experiment. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. Did I just go on a massive tangent and not answer your question at all? No, it was perfect. It was perfect. And it, and it leads into my next question, uh, which Ooh. you guys don't do flagships, which is different. Uh, yeah. you, and you, you like to say you're an experimental brewery. So, I mean, why, why did you kind of go that route and why did you want to do something in that style? I think it, it has a lot to do with the background and blowing glass in that you're always it's so experimental you're always trying to figure out uh, another way to work something and being a, a trained craftsperson and that is being who i identify as uh, when we opened up the brewery we made a decision to do we basically have an oversized five barrel brew house that we can yield six barrels off of and then we have all three barrel fermenters so We'll do, we'll always do one base beer and then split that in. And then most of our creativity actually happens in the fermenters. Uh, and then once we get into the fermenters, we will push the two versions of that base beer as far apart as we can, or we will do controlled side-by-side -side experiments. So it really lets us have a lot of fun and like if when we're developing our PLLs, uh, glass holes is our signature PLL that uh, we just submitted to GABF. So we make that beer normally like four or five times a year. Like that's that's our signature beer. We'll make four or five times a year. And when we're but when we're doing it, we get two shots at it. So we'll we'll tweak like the most recent version was the same base beer, and then uh, it had. Chinook and Citra in the Whirlpool um, because we like the, especially for both of those, they have pretty high um, uh, oil levels and we like the biotransformation. So we like to get those in and Whirlpool specifically, uh, especially Chinook, you know, if it's dry hopped, it can go more classic hop flavors, um, citrusy and or, or piney and resinous, but through biotransformation, you can get some really great tropical um fruit notes and so we did those two in the whirlpool and then we did a uh some fermentation hopping of those two and then dry hopping on one got mosaic which is like the cheater hop mosaic is so freaking delicious no matter <laughs> when you use it and then the other one got um 
a little cascade to try to so one we pushed a little more tropical fruit and then one we pushed a little more classic uh just to experiment so we get to do fun things like that where it's like these really specific side-by-side experiments you know if that's what we choose to do with the batch and then obviously kind of circling back to a few things you you were in louisville yeah, kind of the, i'm sorry Oh, you're good. You're good. You were in Louisville to, to start all of this. This is me circling back in, not, not you. My, my questions mm-hmm. are, I'm, I'm not, I kind of wrote them as I, as I thought them out. Why, why did you guys go to Knoxville and set up shop there? Um, you know, after, you know, living in, growing up in Kentucky. Yeah, well, that's a great question. So it was mainly, you know, we were planning on having kids. Uh, we've got two right now, Logan, who's like four and a half years old and uh, Ella Claire, who had just turned one. Um, so we were planning on having kids. Her family was from the Knoxville area. Uh, so free babysitters. Um, what they didn't tell me was that free babysitters are never free. You <laughs> pay for it. You, know? <laughs> you get to so, see them quite often. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, uh, and then also we were looking at, you know, we were planning on doing a glass blowing studio for sure, possibly a brewery. So we were looking at markets that had a big enough population to support that. And so we were looking at, you know, Louisville, I was really, really pushing to stay in Louisville. Um, that was, that was definitely one of my top picks. I'll probably, it was my top pick. Uh, and then, but Steph was wanting to move closer to her family. And then, so we looked at, you know, Asheville, which, had the same issues as Louisville did as far as starting these businesses in that there were already multiple glass blowing studios and a shit ton of breweries, you know? Um, so same with Louisville, same with Asheville. So those were kind of some, some tough parts on that. And then Nashville at the time, it didn't have the resurgence that it's had recently. Like we've done some festivals uh, with, um, the last couple of years we've gone to and participated with the Southern Grist anniversary parties. And we have so much freaking fun when we go that go there, like great food, great culture. But like six years ago, that was not necessarily the case. And I hate country music growing up in, uh, Southern Kentucky. I listen to so much bad country music. Uh, like pre Chris Stapleton and all of that stuff, like the bad pop country, uh, opposite of them. Uh, <clears throat> so anyway, that's kind of ruled out Nashville cause I hate country music. And, uh, so Knoxville like didn't have a bunch of craft breweries and didn't have any glass blowing studios and it was where her mom was. So that was so- kind of. So it checked off the, the boxes that you needed to have. Yeah. Yeah. And we actually got married in Knoxville like several years prior. So we knew the city enjoyed the city. Um, yeah. And, and then I, I, I saved this one for the end. How did you come up with the name pretentious glass, pretentious beer, pretentious uh, crafts? That yeah. seems like you yeah. had a little fun with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean like, especially if you get a chance to come here and like, if you see the names of our beers, you know, we, that is still there. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Can you hear me? Okay. Sorry. It's, it it uh, went to sleep mode. Uh, but if you see the name of the beers or, you know, interact with the company whatsoever, like we take what we do very seriously. We do not take ourselves seriously at all. You know, like the <laughs> beers we have on tap right now, 
let me stand up and look at the board. So we got glass holes, like I said, it's the pale ale. That's like poking fun at myself. Uh, we've got uh, Death by Snoo Snoo is our hoppy wheat, Futurama reference there. Uh, we've got Fairy Floss is our fruited sour. Uh, Big Kitty Energy is our triple IPA named after, I don't know if you heard about the tiger that was roaming Knoxville last week. Um, New Kids on the Flock. Uh, yeah, you know, like a bunch of silly, a bunch of silly stuff. And like Chug Life is our uh, Pilsner. And, and obviously a lot of that is uh, influenced and homage to uh, Against the Grain. I've mentioned them a few times, but like that was my, you know, I was a regular there whenever I was in um, Louisville. I, lo- I was there five days a week. You know, I love that spot. Yeah. And I'll say those guys never have any fun whatsoever. They do not have any fun. Yeah, right? Those are good role models to have. I think they're really good role models to have. And uh, so, yeah, so that was like we we try to, you know, especially because our name is pretentious, we want to make sure you know that that's a joke. And where that joke came from was that very first round. We're going to bring this all full circle back to the beginning. That beer club in Louisville at Melwood – when I made the first glasses, the bespoke glasses, I carved everybody's handprints. And then after I carved them, I didn't let them keep, I, you know, I kept them all to myself until I finished them all. And then I, the next meeting, I gave it to all my friends. And so they grabbed the glasses and they fit like glove, the truly bespoke tailored beer glasses. And one of my friends just starts giggling. And he's like, Oh my God. He's like, this is so fucking pretentious. You, we have tailored beer glasses <laughs> for our club. And then so I like that was before I was even thinking about it as a company or as an endeavor. And after I started getting serious about it and researching, you know, I knew I didn't want to name it after myself because, you know, I already had sculpture out. So I didn't want that to devalue the sculpture that's, you know, being collected. Uh, so it needed to be under um, an alias and, that moment kept coming back to my mind uh, of him saying that and just, you know, making a glass that literally makes grown men giggle, you know, and, but also it's a play on, you know, the concept of a craft beer, you know, beer historically is an every man's drink. You know, it doesn't have the cultural connotations of bourbon or wine. Um, But, you know, even at that time, like 10 years ago, craft beer was getting to the point where like if you gave a craft beer enthusiast a Budweiser, you know, they would like put their nose in the, like, I don't drink that macro stuff, mm-hmm. you know, the beer like, snob. The beer snob yep. yeah. Yeah. So it was also like, it was a play on craft beer, you know, starting to get kind of pretentious. And then also the fact that we're making handmade glasses and selling, you know, 30 or $40 glasses to drink beer out of. Like, that's pretty. So we, you know, we're, we're well aware of uh, the, the irony uh, of the situation. And we just uh, enjoy it. I, I, I love that. And, and Matthew, my last question for you, this is how I finish every interview off, is what's next for you guys? I mean, obviously, the, the company's growing both on the glass side, the beer side. What's next for Pretentious Crafts and Matthew Cummings? Oh my God, that's a really hard one. Um, especially now with the pandemic. That's not a fair question to ask in this current climate. 
<laughs> You're on the this spot. Is you. Mean. <laughs> this is mean. Well, uh, so we do a bunch of concerts. Um, we're we're we really get into that, uh, and once that is uh, an avenue that we can explore again, uh, we're gonna probably be doubling down on something involving music, um, and then you know on the the glass side. Uh, Man, I mean, that's a tough one. Like, we're just ramping up for the holiday seasons, uh, trying to survive. And with the glass side, we've got a couple of things. To, dude, most of the stuff I can't even talk about. We got a few <laughs> and that's things. fine. That's totally yeah, okay. We got, a, we got a few things in line with some of our, our favorite corporate clients uh, to, to do more experiential-based uh, services for. So, yeah, I mean, just like – we started, we want to share the love of maker culture, of things handmade and made well. And we're, we are, have gone through the pandemic. We're in the pandemic. We're doing okay. We're surviving. And once we get out of this, we're just going to figure out ways to get that into more people's hands and spread the love of having something handmade and having something that somebody cared about. Uh, I love that, Matthew, and I love this chat, and, and thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk about pretentious things. <laughs> my pleasure, man. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you again to Matthew Cummings of Pretentious Crafts, home of Pretentious Beer and Pretentious Glass in Knoxville, Tennessee. That was a great conversation, and you just never know what connections you're going to have with someone, whether it's the Kentucky connection, the Against the Green connection, uh, or just a love of beer and a glassware. You just never know. And don't forget, coming up in October are Whiskey Weeks. That's right, with an S. Whiskey Weeks, five straight episodes of whiskeys from all across the Midwest. You don't want to miss it. And we also have some other fun coming along with that. Until next time, cheers, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>